Thanks for joining us for part two of this 2050 Investors episode on decarbonizing happiness. Previously, we explored the economics of happiness and raised some important questions about the drivers and measures of true happiness in our society. In this part, we chat with Professor Claudia Senek of Sorbonne University and the Paris School of Economics. Claudia is an expert on happiness and well-being and published several articles and books on the economics of happiness, the French happiness and money, and recently on the pandemic. Hello, Claudia. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode on happiness. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a couple of questions on happiness and climate change. How do you see happiness or the pursuit of happiness evolving in the future, given the challenges on climate change? It's a very good question. And, but let me do, make two preliminary remarks before I delve into uh, what research on subjective well-being can tell us about this question. First, let me notice the strong negative impact of the current upsurge of inflation on people's subjective well-being. The loss of purchasing power and the uncertainty about their living standard has a very negative effect on people's well-being. It's a source of uh, anxiety. And notice that this comes with the rise in the price of energy, which in a way is a mega carbon tax. So we have a prefiguration of what fighting climate change will do to well-being if it implies an attack on our living standard. Uh, second, on a different note, let, let us notice that the fight against climate change may also trigger a new cluster of innovations uh, that would sustain a new cycle of growth. I'm thinking about green energy, electricity connection, hydrogen, etc. So this would not lead to a reduction in living standard, but on the contrary, on a, on a new growth cycle. Okay, but let's consider the pessimistic scenario where this does not happen, and uh, at least not in the short run, and societies have to cut down on their production and consumption, in order to reduce carbon emission. Will this make us unhappy? This is the question around which the entire research on happiness revolves. It's uh, the, the question that uh, Richard Easterlin raised in the first place. Will raising the incomes of all raise the happiness of all? This looks like a trivial, useless question with an obvious answer, which is yes. But the answer provided by Richard Easterlin, based on data about GDP growth and self-declared happiness, is that, on the long run, it will not. And the reason why, according to Easterlin, consumption and GDP growth does not make people happy on the long run is because we adapt to everything, because our aspirations rise with our achievements, and so the gap between what we have and what we aspire to never decreases, and so we're never any happier than we used to be in the first place. According to this framework, the answer to your question is optimistic, because if growth does not make people happy, then degrowth will not make them unhappy. So because we adapt to everything, then we will adapt to you know, a lower uh, living standard. Of course, because of adaptation, going back will be painful, but it will be one time, a one-time shock, and people will adapt. It will also depend on how homogeneous this going back is, happens. I mean, uh, if some people lose more than others, then it will create uh, relative income concern, jealousy, frustration. We know that uh, income gaps matter a lot to, to happiness, so it will be less painful if it's done in an orderly way, in a more homogeneous way across all strata, strata, of, uh, strata of society. Well, personally, I would not really adopt this line with this uh, optimistic view because it is still controversial how much the happiness effect of growth is purely due to relative concerns or adaptation. If you think about life expectancy, child mortality, or health, 
all things that we care about, they are super correlated with GDP per capita. So it's not obvious that absolute levels don't matter. And the only thing that matters is the gap between uh, what we have and what we aspire to. Okay, maybe a last note is that we know from recent research that people who are active in fighting climate change and global heating, who, for instance, change their mobility or eating habits, are more satisfied with their life. So there may be a positive impact for some people from voluntary sobriety or eco-action. There is also a pessimistic answer to your question, is that even if Easterlin is right and the other, we adapt to everything, there is one element that is really integral to happiness, and it's the prospect, the, the role of the future, the role of future prospects, expectations, and hope. We know that we have an innate taste for increasing time profile. We are hardwired to love the prospect of progression and improvement. So without growth, we will miss this essential element of happiness. Yeah, this is quite fascinating. And I think the argument around adaptation is quite powerful because human, the human species through Darwinism by natural selection has essentially survived because of its ability to adapt. And I think that's a potentially quite a powerful argument uh, against uh, degrowth. This leads me to this following question. Uh, do you think that current generation of citizens are through relentless increase in greenhouse gas emission, potentially putting the happiness of future generation at risk or at a lower level than the level of happiness they are enjoying today? Because in history, over time, kids tends to have attained better level of living standard than their, than their parents. And I think we might be reaching a tipping point whereby the future generation might potentially face a more difficult environment. And this is very painful because, as I just said, we love progression. We really care about doing better than we used to do. And we, we really like when our, to think that our kids will live better than we, than we did. And they like to think that they live better than their parents did. So this will be, this, if this happens, this will be detrimental to happiness, of course. Now, of course, I, I don't think that the current generation, the, uh, the boomers, those who are uh, in their 40s to 60s now, are voluntarily harming the next generation. I think we were a generation of great optimism. We thought that free trade, you know, growth, uh, market economy, etc. And democracy went uh, hand in hand and everything was for the best. And I think uh, this generation did not realize that the climate um, change or the global heating was a problem. So I don't think it's voluntary. I, I'm not really in favor of this, you know, creating conflicts between groups of societies or generation. I think it's not a good way to solve problems. The next question I was thinking about was, do you think our society can move away from consumerism and discover the true value of happiness? I mean, you, you touched on this point earlier, but we're still very much adapted or uh, addicted to consumption when you think about uh, holidays and travels or the amount of energy involved in our shopping or Christmas parties, etc. Do you think that transition is something that can occur over time? This was also the intuition of Richard Easterlin and researchers in, the, in this vein. Their idea was that it, we should look for goods or rather activities that are not subject to adaptation or comparisons like uh, friendship, sports, uh, hiking in natural landscapes, volunteering, and everything that is creating social ties. Uh, recall that in the World Happiness Report that is based on the Gallupport poll, the most discriminant question, the one that really makes the largest difference across countries, is the answer to the question, do you have someone to count on in case you need? So it's not a consumer good. However, I think we should distinguish consumption and consumerism. So consumption is really a pleasure, and this is indisputable, 
Because consumption is the action of exerting a certain power. We talk about purchasing power. It's a, it's a command over goods and services. So it's, it gives you a feeling of existing. Consumption is also a synonymous for comfort, which is uh, one of the two uh, ingredients for happiness, uh, you know, comfort and excitement. So it's very difficult to argue that happiness does not depend on consumption. But consumerism is different. Consumerism is a lifestyle whereby we derive a very large part of our pleasure from market consumption, and we are in a mode of fast consumption. Rapid obsolescence of goods, fast rate of replacements of all goods and appliances, a culture of um, throwing away, throwing things away instead of repairing them. So moving away from this type of consumerism can be conducive to happiness for two reasons. The first one is what we call decreasing marginal utility of consumption, meaning what difference does it make, you know, your 53rd pair of shoe, what difference does it really make? Maybe using your time in another way would be more conducive to happiness. The other reason is the idea of turning to investment goods. Here I'm referring to the difference between investment goods and standard consumer goods. Investment goods are the ones that require an initial investment in the form of a training, learning, creating habits like uh, playing music, um, writing, and all the uh, creative activities or consumption of, of art, like opera. You need to, to take time to, to learn how to appreciate. This requires time, and the pleasure you derive from that decreases with the time you already spent on that. By contrast, the usual consumer goods are subject to adaptation again. We get rapidly tired of them. The pleasure that we derive from them decreases with the quantity that we consume. So you have, on the one side, adaptive goods, and their time and quantity play against your pleasure, your happiness. And on the other hand, you have investment goods and their time and quantity play in your favor. So moving away from consumerism may trigger a diversion of people's time away from rapid adaptation goods towards self-reinforcing positive emotions of investment goods. So this would be, the again, the optimistic view. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely an excellent point. And it reminds me of some of the, the points we discussed uh, with the Greek philosophers and and others, a great thinker who are tried to move away from the physical world and try to be more resilient. And, and, and I think it might bring some hope on our ability to decarbonize happiness in a way by, by not making it contingent on, on buying more stuff. Another question is, following from your, your brilliant points, is whether we should therefore have happiness as a goal for society, like the example of Bhutan and its gross national uh, happiness index. I think in a liberal society, the mission of the government should not be to make people happy, but rather to create the conditions for them to pursue their happiness. Government should not be too paternalistic. But nonetheless, I think it's useful to measure other aggregates in addition to GDP, because government and public policy is going to aim at what is measured and what they can communicate on, so like quarterly GDP or um, employment figures. As we say, to measure is to govern. And de facto, we see more and more initiatives trying to com create uh, comparable systems of uh, measuring prosperity beyond GDP. It would be useful if uh, all countries adopted the same harmonized system of national accounts uh, for the measurement of well-being beyond GDP, so we could compare and we could uh, understand what is being reached. So, I'm more in favor of a dashboard rather than a unique indicator that would replace GDP, of course, by no means. But we should also have one in main indicator, maybe life satisfaction, that we can compare across time and across countries 
as this is actually the case, again, with the World Happiness Report, based on Gallup World Poll, the life satisfaction question is really considered by everybody as the all-encompassing question that measures, that captures all the elements of happiness. It's useful to measure and publicize this kind of, uh, of indicators. Last question. There is this general sentiment that French people are always complaining uh, and appear to be less happy than um, other similar countries. Is this true? And what's your opinion on that point? It's true that when you, you, you analyze the, the level of happiness declared by um, people living in different countries, maybe European countries, to keep it comparable, the French are always a little bit less satisfied with their life as other people would be in the same uh, objective conditions. Uh, they're less satisfied uh, whether they live in France or abroad, they're less satisfied with their living circumstances. Uh, why? I think this has to do with a certain nostalgia. The idea of a golden age where France was uh, the, the ideal model of France. Maybe it's the 17th century with Louis XIV, maybe it's the 18th century, uh, the French Revolution. Maybe it's even the 70s, uh, a period where um, everything was better. So there is a, a certain uh, attraction to the past, a nostalgia of the past, and a small appetence for the, for the future. Also, probably the French have high aspirations, maybe even somewhat utopian aspirations, which makes them less satisfied, less easily satisfied with their current situation. In our barometer that we have with the, the Wellbeing Observatory, we ask the French every quarter since 2016 about the period they would like to live in if they could. So the present time or maybe the past, like uh, they can say, I would like to live in the 50s or in the 60s or in the 90s, etc., or even in a more remote past. So 40% of them prefer to live in the current period. All the rest want to live in the past. A quarter of all the French want to live in the 80s. And less than 5% want to live in the future. Currently, 2%. So <laughs> we see this, uh, this orientation towards the, um, the past. We also wanted to know if, uh, whether they have an, in mind uh, an alternative ideal model, for instance, uh, maybe a country where they would dream to live in instead of France. So we ask this question now in our, in our barometer. The answer is no. About 40% prefer to live in France. And otherwise, the country that they that mention is South of Europe, Italy, Spain or Portugal, or Canada, which is the French version of the United States. So... Uh, it's really, uh, my interpretation of these uh, findings is that the French are attached to France. It's an idealized model of France about which they are nostalgic and against which they evaluate the, the current situation of France. If I must add a <laughs> negative note. No, it's true that when you see the state of the welfare system in France, especially like the, the, the hospital system, for instance, or the education system, which were really the hallmark of the French system, they have some reasons to be dissatisfied. <laughs> I think we should probably uh, think about a time machine instead of back to the future. It should be back to the past. <laughs> um, this was uh, excellent. Thanks so much for these great insights, Claudia. Uh, I think there's a lot to think about. Thanks for inviting me. And I hope you'll have a um, happy rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors and thanks to Claudia Senek for her incredible insights. I hope this episode has helped you get a better sense of the future of happiness. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave comments and stars anywhere you like and spread the word. See you 
at the next episode. While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.